school with historical dramas is that everybody's going to speak with an English accent for whatever reason. Nobody knows. But like, no matter what the time period, no matter where we are, everybody's going to have an English accent. <laughs> Ooh, um, let's talk about it. <laughs> I'm, I'm, su- I'm always super annoyed by that. Like, no matter where we are, the one thing they have in common, British accent. everyone this is alex and this is m welcome to the latest episode of the good the bad the basic this is the podcast for tv lovers movie buffs and binge watchers of all ages on this podcast we'll be discussing what we loved what we hated and what's just a bit problematic about the tv and movies that we're addicted to and do a bit of rewriting where necessary. For much more exclusive content, become a show producer on Patreon and get access to after-the-episode outtakes, curated playlists, movie reviews, music video retrospectives, and so much more. Join the GBB family at patreon.com forward slash goodbadbasic. Today we'll be discussing the historical drama Rome. This period drama, which begins in the year 1 BC, follows the lives of two Roman soldiers whose personal lives are deeply interwoven in key historical events during Rome's transition from a republic to an empire. Although the series touches on and in some cases dives deeply into true historical events, the series' mostly peripheral view of them allows the audience to see how the rise of this empire affected those outside of the ruling class. So how did the most ancient show in our historical drama season manage to engage so many people? And how is Rome holding up over 13 years after its finale? And what made this series so hard to turn away from? Stay tuned. everyone here are some details about rome the series is a historical drama and it was created by john milius william j mcdonald and bruno heller the series was released from august 28 2005 through march 25 2007 um, on the hbo network in the u.s bbc2 in the uk and rye2 in italy The series had two seasons and a total of 22 episodes. Rome stars Kevin McKidd as Lucius Varinus. He is a Roman soldier, a centennial who becomes a prefect. He is our primary protagonist. Ray Stevenson as Titus Pullo. He's another Roman soldier, a legionary. He's our secondary protagonist. And both Lucius and Titus are in the, the Caesar's 13th Legion. Saren Hines as Julius Caesar, Kenneth Cranham as Gnaeus Pompus Magnus, aka Pompey Magnus. He is a Roman general and a member of the Senate. Polly Walker as Atia of the Julii. She is Julius Caesar's niece. James Purefoy as Mark Antony. He is a Roman general and politician, also a close friend and supporter of Caesar. 
Tobias Menzies as Marcus Junius Brutus. He is a young friend and a supporter of Julius turned adversary and a supporter of the Senate. He is also Julius Caesar's most famous assassin. Mark Perkis as and Simon Woods as Gaius Octavian of the Julii, later known as Caesar Augustus. He is the youngest um, child and the son of Attia and Caesar's great nephew. Lindsay Duncan as Servilia of the of the Genii. She is a mother of Marcus Brutus, um, one at one point Caesar's mistress and later a great enemy of Attia's. Indira Varma as Niobe. She's Lucius Varinus's wife. Uh, Nicholas Woodson as Pasca. He is Caesar's slave and confidence, confidant slash advisor. Um, he is freed uh, um, in season two posthumously. Uh, Carrie Condon as Octavia of the Julii. She is Atia's daughter and eldest child and Caesar's great niece. Later, she becomes the wife of Mark Antony. Rick Warden as Quintus Pompey, the son of Pompey Magnus. This is an entirely fictional character. Um, that's like, I guess, a condensation of all the, the sons of the actual Pompus Magnus. Carl Johnson as Cato the Younger. He is a traditionalist politician and a defender of the Republic. David Bammer as Marcus Tilius Cicero. He is a moderate politician and a scholar. And last but not least, Lee Boardman as Timon. He is a Jewish horse trader and he moonlights as Atia's part-time bodyguard and personal assassin. These are all of our major players of Rome. And that first season lasted 12 episodes. Let's get into it. Yeah. So you love this show. Yeah, I love the show. I watched it when it originally aired. I was deeply, deeply saddened when the show got canceled. But apparently the show got canceled because even though they had planned for five seasons, by the time they were halfway through with the second season production, almost all the money was gone. I believe they that. Gr <laughs> they grossly <laughs> underestimated how much money this show would cost to make. And, like, and I think that's part of like, I know that's part of why I'm a little upset is like you had all this money and still there's so much that needed to be done visually with this show. <laughs> like I felt like there was so much that like could have been done better. <laughs> yeah. A lot of the money was sunk into costume set design and travel because like I said, the show premiered on three different networks in three different countries. It was a joint venture. And for the most part, it was filmed on location. They were actually in Italy. They were actually in Egypt. And I'm just like, but we could have saved 15% or more. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, y'all are doing a lot, and I like I respect it, but I don't respect poor money management. I can't. <laughs> right, poor money management is always like not not it. Um, but apparently, uh, they they do HBO execs really do um regret canceling the show. And I mean, in the in the age of 2021, where everything is a reboot, like it could come back. There are definitely their talks, there's rumblings, there's feelings and thoughts. I mean, I feel like if they reboot this show, I'm not even trying to see our leads anymore. I would rather focus on like uh Niobe's kids. Um, 
and the little slave boy that, that Lucius brought home, like who should be adults by now? Um, I don't want to go back into the, the older, the older characters on the show, because I just feel like if we're going to pretend like these people are still in their, their thirties and forties, I don't want it. <laughs> I know like Kevin McKidd is so old now. Like, so is Tobias. Right. So is Tobias Menzies. He's all, he's also like an old man now. Like, Okay. These people are. And Kevin McKidd was in like his early thirties in Rome, right? Like he and yeah, Niobe got so married young. when when she was like thirteen, and I guess he was somewhere between seventeen and eighteen. But like he looked like he was in his mid thirties, early forties on Rome. Um, now this is the first thing I've ever seen Kevin McKidd in. Period. Like before Percy Jackson, before Grey's Anatomy, this was the show that introduced me to Kevin McKidd. And I thought it was really interesting that he was cast because he really does look like a lot of the Greco-Roman statues in the face. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, those busts that they do of like their soldiers. He looks like one of those personifies. So I was like, man, talk about typecasting. But he really slays in this role. So let's talk about Rome really quickly. This is 1 BC, literally uh, the year before Christ was born. This is when we start. Mm -hmm. And, uh... Caesar has been at war in Gaul, a.k.a. Germany, for, like, the longest time. And the people are restless. Um, he still has a supporter and a friend in Pompey, the great Pompus Magnus. Um, however, um, this is largely because Pompey is married to his daughter, Julia, right? And in that first episode, Julia dies giving birth. Um, so like that last bond between them is severed. Like he's no longer married to Caesar's daughter. So like, there's no, there's no, there's only, there's no, there's no strong ties there anymore. Now, Julius Caesar, his primary concern is not even that his daughter is dead. It's like, oh man, Pompey's going to need a new wife. Meanwhile, Pompus is like, well, she's dead now. So I guess I don't have to play this game with you anymore. (laughs) Mm. And he comes out and he comes out and like he he goes from frenemy to full on enemy. And this is where it's it's really starting. Um, the Republic and the senators of the Republic are not okay with Julius Caesar's war and trying to turn war uh Rome into an empire. He is adamant that everything he's doing is for the good of the Republic. And in all honesty, I can see why he believes that, because for the most part, um, if it wasn't for these wars and the spoils of 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 war, the republic would be dying because we have like tons of poor people as it is, right? And like the war and the spoils of war are what's what's keeping the republic hanging on. But these are old men, as we have said. But the Senate is literally like the forty five plus club. There's mm. only one young man in the whole Senate, and that's that's Marcus Brutus. And everybody else is, like, 45 and over. They don't know what's out there. Most of them have never been soldiers. They have never fought in a war. They don't—basically, they have no understanding of the world outside of the Roman walls and everything that the, 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 the legions have to do to keep the country safe. <laughs> right. So he has a bunch of enemies now. And the the entire first season is really about, like, the political juggling act, the hot wars, the cold wars, the manipulations, the behind-the-scenes alliances, all of that good stuff. But they're not our primary, primary protagonists. Our primary protagonists are these two soldiers. You have this uh, uh, centennial, Lucius Verinus, and we have this legionary, um, Titus Polo, who, when we meet him, Titus Polo's, like, about to be punished. Um, he's about to be killed for something. Um, but the two of them 
are always in the middle of things throughout the series. We deal with their personal lives and we deal with their lives as part of the 13th Legion and um, the balancing act, basically, um, especially on Lucius Verinus's part, who cares a lot about the vows that he's taken as a soldier, but also doesn't agree with Caesar's war. Right. So let's talk about some of our characters. Um, so Lucius Verinus has 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 been off fighting in Caesar's wars for almost eight years now. He hasn't seen his wife in almost eight years. And in those eight years, he has never been with another woman, not a slave, not a prostitute, uh, not a, not a mistress, not a side chick on the road, nothing. He's in completely right. A real one. They don't make them like this no more. (laughs) They didn't even make them like this back then. Um, he hasn't seen his wife in almost eight years he left a wife and two daughters at home when he finally gets home and he sees his wife niobe she's holding a child a baby and like we don't know a lot about science but we know (laughs) back then but we know how conception works so he's like whose baby is that and she tells him that it's his oldest daughter's child. Now, she got married to him when she was 13. And his daughter's going to be 14 soon. She's telling him that, you know, she had a kid with the Jover son. They're engaged. Um, you know, they're about to be married. Now, in Niobe's defense, she was told incorrectly that he had died. So she conceived this whole other child thinking that her man had died. So when he comes home, she passes the child off as his grandson. <laughs> Oh, and we already know that's about to be some mess because people can't hold water. Um, it's interesting because I'm sure all the neighbors saw when she was pregnant. Um, her sister knows who the baby daddy is because the baby daddy happens to be her brother-in-law. Um, but ironically enough, he didn't find out who the baby was, who the who the baby's uh, father really was, and who the baby's mother really was until like the end of season one. Right. It's that secret that's always threatening to slip out on literally every episode. Um, Then you have Titus Pullo, who, you know, he's a bit like, he's not as honorable as Lucius Farinas, and he's not as smart as uh, Mark Antony. But he actually, when after Lucius Farinas saves his life twice, turns out to be a pretty loyal friend who goes above and beyond to... Uh, hold on to Niobe's secret and does his part to make sure that Lucius never learns a secret either, which is honestly pretty honorable, pretty commendable. We need more friends like this in our lives, honestly. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> like, listen, like their friendship is honestly like goals in a lot of ways because they argue they bicker. There's, there's, they have a huge difference in personality. But the fact is, like, they're really down for each other. Like, they're, they're ten, ten toes down for each other. Um, but you know, like I said, even though there are protagonists, we do get to see the inner world of the ruling class. We get to meet, like, you know, Atia, Caesar's niece, who's like a snake, literally a snake. She's like the, she's a horrible person. She doesn't have a friend in this world because she's manipulative and cold and calculating to everyone. Um, um, certainly not limited to her children, especially her daughter. Um, man, Atia's daughter is a person I feel most sorry for throughout the entire series. Yeah. Why? 
Because her mom constantly just, like, uses her. Like, mm. so, in season one, her daughter Octavia is married to a man named Clavius. Atia never approved of Clavius. She never liked Clavius. And when she hears that Pompey's wife is dead, um, and um, Caesar writes her and says, I, I'm trusting you to find him another wife because I haven't been home long enough to know who's acceptable. She forces her daughter to get a divorce and um, presents her daughter to Pompey in the hopes that he will get engaged to her daughter. Like, it, it literally whoring her daughter out to become Pompey's new wife um, after forcing her to get this divorce. And then after all of that, he does he chooses to marry some other woman because he's already on the outs with Caesar at this point. And when, she, when you know, her, her daughter's like, you know, let me go to Clavius, maybe he'll take me back, her mother disapproves. She gets her daughter to fight all her weapons for her, all her battles for her, but the girl is suffering. She's really, really suffering, you know, at the hands of this incredibly narcissistic, manipulative parent. And she has a harder time than her brother because, you know, this is still a culture where very much like if you're an unmarried woman, like you're supposed to be at the mother's beck and call, essentially. Like, I just feel really, really bad for her. Like, she's one of those long-suffering characters on the show. You know, she's divorced now. She doesn't have any money of her own. Because her mom's still alive and very well. Like, the, their relationship is just so, so, so ugly. But I'm sure many, 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 many uh, daughters of narcissistic mothers will find it incredibly relatable. Mm. Uh, yeah. Okay, so I'm sure it's obvious by now. Like, so... I've watched this show, like, several times. I watched it again, and I, I still could not follow most of it, to be perfectly <laughs> real. <laughs> like, um, but, so, like, all you're saying, I'm like, oh, it's like, yeah, that's real. Like, I fuck with that. Like, this is all very illuminating. Like, I like now parts of the show are starting to, like, click into sense. Because I'm like, <laughs> oh, that's what was happening. Good. Yeah, yeah, know. yeah. So, um, yeah, her daughter get this divorce and then like later on when when pompous uh when pompey magnus marries somebody else and not octavia octavia starts sneaking around with her ex-husband and uh, her mother finds out and atia has her former son-in-law assassinated to put an end to the affair because she's like she's just that controlling manipulative yeah she gets tim in the horse trader that she's fucking yeah. Um, to, to, to kill him. So the, one of the reasons why this show is hard to follow sometimes, um, is that it's written in a very Shakespearean style. Um, the people in Rome and the characters on this show didn't openly threaten each other. They spoke in such a way that the threat was always thinly veiled, or there was like a double entendre of like, this could be a blessing. This could be a curse. Uh, very rarely did they like outright threaten each other and like outright provoke each other. And so a lot of times it's in the subtext, it's in the body language. Um, for instance, when we first um, see Atia and Servilia, uh, Caesar's, Caesar's mistress, converse at one of Atia's parties, it seems like Atia is giving her a compliment, but Servilia is aware and you can see it in her response that Atia's only trying to go to her in front of Caesar's wife, Calpurnia. 
So she like, she kind of like dials down the flattery and tries to put an end to the conversation as soon as possible. Cause she sees Atius trying to expose her as the mistress in front of Caesar's wife. <laughs> yeah. So it's like one of the things he, like you can't, no one's ever direct. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's a lot. There's just a lot that I don't, I mean, these are choices they've made them, but there's a lot, there's a lot in this show that like is not like, I, at least to me is not working. And, um, and listen, maybe it's the basic bitch in me that is like, I just don't get this. And it's, it's not to my taste, but I do because like the sets are really expensive. And, and I think that was it. Like, there's like a language, like in the, like you can't, I guess my opinion is like something's got to give. Like you can't and um something's got to give. You've got to like uh there's even if it feels basic to you the creator, like I really do and obviously maybe I'm in the minority cuz you obviously got the show. Like but there's definitely like there's definitely a lot of the show to me that feels like it's suffering from a problem that uh, I think the tutors suffered from and, and made like, at least for me as well, like the tutors really difficult to follow at times, which is that the, the visual storytelling in the show is lacking. You're, you're having to rely on like essentially entirely an actor's performance to get across points. And all these actors are like really good, like are, are good. That's fine. But that's still like a real gamble. And there are things you can do like with the filmmaking to help that along to like make those to like drive those points harder um, into like an audience's mind so they can get like, oh, this is what's happening. And like we and I think sometimes people don't think of that because like we're so you because like there's like a second nature I think to film but like it's it's really simple things it's like it's like shots of like and it's things that I think maybe you probably like wouldn't think of but like it usually is like sh- like closes of like people being like super close together or shots of like things exchanging hands or like you know like normal stuff stuff but like that was a part of it to me is that like and and I it really like drove home like why like at least re-watching it again was so difficult to get through because it's like I was on episode nine and I was like what's happening on this show like I, li- <laughs> I was like I don't like in the language in the way that they write the dialogue it's like it's like that's another thing if you're introducing like an audience to an entirely new language because it's not even like Cause I get it. Like they're trying to mimic like a sort of old, like old language. And I, I hesitate to even like, and you're right. Like, I guess like it's trying to mimic Shakespearean or like they were trying to think about like how people, obviously they're not speaking Italian. Cause that's like, or Aramaic. Cause those are the, cause that's like actually what they would be speaking back then. Um, right. But so they're trying to like, you know, be like, but like the sort of um, the sort of rule with historical dramas is that everybody's going to speak with an English accent for whatever reason. Nobody knows, but like no matter what the time period, no matter where we are, everybody's going to have an English accent. <laughs> Ooh, um, let's talk about it. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, su- I'm always super annoyed by that. Like no matter where we are, the one thing they have in common: British accent. 
British accents. So I get it. Like they're trying to like up and, and for whatever reason that will always up the prestige factor in like a historical drama. Um, so, you know, they're speaking. So it's like, they're trying to mimic like a sort of Elizabethan, like um, old world, like Shakespearean language and okay, fine. But if you're going to do that, you have to be like really clear, like with what's happening. Right. Cause because now you're essentially asking the audience to, like, understand this brand new language you've given to them. Like, it's like, it's a lot. It was a lot. And just rewatching it, I was like, oh, this is why I could never. Because, like, there's a lot that, like, you're asking of me. And honestly, it's just too much. <laughs> I mean, I get that. I mean, Shakes- the, the Shakespearean style of writing, which is very similar to Rome, um, where nothing is said, very few things are said directly. Um, most things are, most things and most situations are revealed indirectly is inherently for a lot of people hard to, um, understand. And that's kind of the reason why, for instance, people love 10 things I hate about you, but no one's read Taming of the Shrew. <laughs> Right. Like, there, we we want we we want a modern dialogue for modern context, and that's good. That's perfectly acceptable. I like what the show does because just because I feel like it made it easier for me to immerse myself in this world where every war there was was a cold war behind every every war, and there was an enemy behind every friend. For me, it it upped the intrigue factor but i can also see how it would be polarizing um for some audiences and i um, sorry mm -hmm? just because just before i forget this thought i want to push back a little on something that you just said um shakespeare is actually super direct <laughs> like it's super direct that's part of the brilliance of shakespeare like in shakespearean actual like actual shakespearean shakespearean language like um uh, it's super, it's super, super direct, like crack wind blow. Like I would sooner pluck the babe from my nipple and dash out its brains on the streets. Would ha had I sworn what I do, had I sworn as you did to this, like, that's very direct. I understand exactly what it's saying. And like part of the brilliance of Shakespeare was um, like, it was written for like basic, like it was written for like the basic of that, the basics of that era. And like, that's how he wrote. So I do want to push back on that idea is like, of like, okay, like do this flower language and like be indirect, but like, that's not really how Shakespeare was. It's very direct. Like you, that's why you like get it. Like really when it's acted out for you, because it's super, like, it's super basic. The plots are super basic. Like it's all like there for you to like, get it. <laughs> Whereas like this, wasn't really it was it, there was a lot that was happening um i mean well when i say that shakespeare is hard to grasp i mean for a lot of people in modern day because there's a lot of people that read shakespeare today and don't understand it it was written for the common man at the time but the common man at the time spoke in a way that we don't speak anymore i guess that's the point i'm trying to get across a lot of people don't like the writing in rome because they feel like uh it's not saying enough or it's doing too much. Um, 
for me, it strikes a very good balance. Um, but again, that's a that's a very very personal assessment. Um, I know other people who like Rome, but I also know other people who feel the way that you do. Like uh, they could have done more to make it clear. I for me, it was very it was very clear because. Um, uh, I kind of, I, I really enjoy reading mysteries. So I kind of like, uh, I kind of like shows that deal heavy in characters who are always scheming and always plotting. <laughs> so as soon as I see that on my screen, I am engaged. Literally the only issue I had with season one of Rome is that, I mean, we know how y'all like to whitewash Egyptians, but you, you guys really found the most basic white woman that has ever been cast to play Cleopatra, to play Cleopatra. Fix it. Right. She, yeah, it's like... And I made her a druggie to boot. Please, God. <laughs> right. And I think, like, people's pushback with, like, the Cleopatra narrative is always like, well, she was Greek. She was, like, Ptolemy, like, the first, like, that's her fam familial line. And it's like... Okay, sure, but, like, don't sit out here and pretend that, like, Greek people aren't, like, routinely misidentified as Latinx, like, when they come to the States. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, Greek people are in, are very, very, very uh, dark. Um, I mean, dark. they're what I like to call dark white. Um, <laughs> they are. They're spicy this, white. I know her and her brother, Ptolemy, are, like, uh, of, of, of Greek heritage. Um, I also know that, you know, they were not just brother and sister. They were husband and wife. They, she, she calls him little husband on the show as well. I'm aware that uh, in Ptolemy's case, um, specifically, he was looking all kinds of inbred. And there, I'm, I'm sure there's a reason there's good reasons why you would make them more aesthetically pleasing in modern day iterations, I'm not sure why they be, they get increasingly white with each adaptation. And like I said, like I've seen white women cast as Cleopatra. I've seen nothing but white women cast as Cleopatra, but y'all really found her the most basic one. She's not even the most attractive woman on the show. And you're supposed right. to have me believe that she's this iconic beauty. <laughs> like right. the, the one that brought men and armies to their feet. She's not even the best looking woman on the fix it, Jesus. Like, Indira right. Varma is arguably the best looking woman on the show. And Niobe is a much more engaged, much more complex character. And, you know, uh, part of the larger supporting cast of season one. So I understand why Indira Varma would go for that role. But if you're going to cast someone as Cleopatra, you should probably have cast someone who looks something like her. Right. And, and I mean, and listen, like I'm all, although like, I think we're getting like a new Cleopatra. I think they've like greenlit somebody else to do it, which uh, here we go. But again, but, um, I don't know. If we'll see. We'll cast see. needs sunscreen to film over there. Cast again. <laughs> I remember when they were shooting gods of Egypt and all those white people had to put on SPF 100 every day, talking about where the real Egyptians, please stop stop and i think that's it i mean i will say like shout out to the random black people they found to be in e in, in egypt although um <laughs> like uh because at least they understood the sort of ridiculousness of like because like when they're wearing those wigs those essentially like box braid wigs <laughs> like <laughs> yeah, i was sorry. like what I was like, wow, like, they're really gonna, another show where, like, 
they're going to wear these box braid wigs and then just not have any black people around as if like white people thought of that shit like themselves or as if their hair could do that. Like that's, that's always a fun time. <laughs> like, but then I was like, Oh no, like they're like, they're black. Oh, this is, this is cool. But like, you know, of course they're only like servants and, and whatever. Yeah. That was another problem for me. Like all the actual black people in Egypt were in servant capacity or mercenary capacity. It was like watching a Brazilian soap opera. Essentially. <laughs> essentially. <laughs> all the black people were servants or slaves. Um, it's whatever. Um, but like, for me, that was like one of the cringiest moments of the show was like, I'm like, y'all really cast this girl as Cleopatra. Wow. Um, my mind was blown. I really couldn't get past um, the fact that I'm supposed to believe that this woman has such a great influence over men, that she's this great beauty, when we literally pass up like a bunch of really good looking women back in Rome. Um, but okay, it's whatever. Um, one of the more interesting characters on the show is Atia's son, Octavian. Like, she is really rude and snippy with him. She makes fun of the fact that he's a scholar and he likes books and he's into politics and this, that, and the third. And so he becomes very cold and very shut down as a result. The only person he's ever warm with is his older sister. But like, you know, after he comes back from being away at school, he eventually, um, you know, by season two becomes, you know, um, uh, Augustus, uh, the first emperor of Rome. So it's kind of interesting to see like this very, very cold, introverted child uh, become a ruler because all through season one, we learn that Octavian is very smart. He's very calculating. He knows a lot about political strategy more than his more than uh, more than arguably Caesar did because he, he doesn't just go to war like they do. He studies the art of war, um, which makes someone a very effective leader. Right. If you can study what everyone before you did wrong, <laughs> right. that makes you that's, very that's always gonna help. Leader. But one of the things about Octavian that truly put him above the rest is this kid knows how to do something few other people on the show know how to do: keep his mouth shut. <laughs> this kid is holding so many people's secrets. He's holding the secret of Lucius Verinus's wife. Um, uh, he is holding the secret that uh, Julius Caesar is an epileptic. Every time someone tells him, just like, yo, just hold on to the secret. It's fine. He's like, okay, I'll hold on to the secret. <laughs> so it's one of those things where it's like, you you see in this show how many people's loose lips got them killed. Yeah, I mean, y- yes. Yeah, I, 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 I'm agreeing because you understood the show. I, I really <laughs> did not get the show, you guys. Like, I I'm swear sorry. To God. I'm so sorry. I okay, do you so remember goofy. the? Ep- do you remember the episode where Polo goes to Octavian and he's like, "Listen, I need your help on a matter concerning a friend," and he's like, "Well, if you know for sure, then do something. If you don't know for sure, keep your peace, because accuse the accusation alone will do just as much harm as the actual deed." So he's basically telling him, like, accusing this man's wife of sleeping around while he was gone is going to do just as much damage as if she'd actually done it. So don't do anything unless you have proof. And then the two of them get her brother-in-law, Evander, and torture him into admitting that he slept with Niobe and that the boy, Lucius, is his his and Niobe's son. Do you remember that? Uh, Vaguely, Yes. And then he's like, he tells Polo, like, listen, we're never going to talk about this again, <laughs> ever. 
in the history of ever. We will never talk about this. Um, but season one of, of Rome ends on a very interesting note. Uh, Cleopatra hears that Julius is, has come to Egypt and she wants to be with him because she knows that an alliance with him will get her brother off the throne and put her on it because she's been in hiding for a while. But she's ovulating right now. Um, like that, that this is her last night ovulating. So she tries to force Varinus into sleeping with her and he refuses and she sleeps with Polo instead. The next night she meets Julius Caesar and she sleeps with him then. And then they show you, you know, I guess several months later, uh, Cleopatra and Julius Caesar presenting their newborn son to the legionaries. And Lucius Varinus is looking at Polo because they both know that there's a good chance this is his child. Mm. That's wild. Like, we, we both know what she pulled. So basically, <laughs> he fathered a child with a queen. Um, um, but she she wanted to have a son by Julius Caesar because uh, she already asked him about his wives, Calpurnia and the two before her, and knew that he didn't have any sons. Um, that if she gave him a son, then she could really control this man. But, you know, she got it in while she was still ovulating, and he's none the wiser. I mean, well, damn, yeah. <laughs> so that's what happens in season one. Season one of Rome was kind of wild, but it ends with uh, Caesar's murder. And it's it's one of those situations where, honestly, I feel like they could have they could have dragged that on for another season. But they 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 end the first season with Julius Caesar's infamous murder. The murder actually happens because someone finds out through the grapevine about uh, Varinus's wife, Niobe. Caesar gets Varinus as his personal bodyguard because he knows this is a man you can count on. He won't let you down. But the person who finds out tells Varinus about Niobe and he abandons Caesar's side to go home and speak to his wife. And that's when Caesar gets got. So we see how the actions of these just two legionaries affect the, you know, shape history in a major, major way. These people that were n will never be written about in history books, these completely fictional characters that just happen to be at the right place at the right time for all these his great historical events. So Caesar gets murdered, she gets got, and now his entire family, all of the Julii are in danger. And that's how season one ends. Now, I know you weren't following the storyline very much, but how did you feel about the other aspects of the show? Like I said, I think the filmmaking could have really done some... I It just need Like, so I had commented that... And I think I could have... And that's part of, I think, what bothers me is, like, I could have gotten it had the filmmaking aspect of it been stronger. Um, something that I commented on about, like, that I thought the Borges did really well was that, like, it really got this idea of, like, telling a visual story about these plots. Like, it did not rely on, like, conversation between characters to get across, like, what was happening in the plot. It didn't rely on conversations between two characters. So, like, if the plot was like, we're gonna bribe the Vatican, you, you know, we're gonna bribe the people to get this secret out to do this thing, then it's gonna, like, cut and show you, like them putting the messages in the pig the person receiving the messages like 
Um, and then like the bird flying off with like, you know, it's going to tell like a visual story to support something that you just heard. Um, it's not going to just like rely on these two people having a conversation and then like cut to like the, the assassination or the sex scene or whatever. Um, and that's what Rome did. And that's also sort of like what tutors did and like your show suffers for it. I think that is like a, it's a, at least for me, it's like, it's a failing. And I think that, and I think that aspect of like being really good at visual storytelling, like you, I think when you are like, it is a, when it is a historical drama and like when you are um, doing this thing, that's something that you have to be really good at. And in fact, when, as I think about it now, this is actually an aspect that like fantasy shows are very, very good at. Fantasy shows are really good at, like, being, like, okay, like, here's this new world, this new language, and here are, like, all the things that happen here, and here I'm showing you all of these things, and I guess, like, they have to be, because, yeah, like, because there's no other reference for, like, this world and how it works in a fantasy show. It's brand new, so you really do have to teach the audience, and maybe historical dramas sort of fall back on like okay well you already like where they get got is like they're they're like oh well you already know all of this where it's like "Mm, yes but mm, not really Mm. i mean that's a valid point um for me rome was much easier to follow than the tutors but um that's because i could follow the time jumps in rome a lot better and um it was very easy for me to understand the characters interpersonal relationships like who was a friend to whom who was related to whom who was an enemy to whom it was a lot harder for me to follow um in the tutors simply because the tutors for me made another big mistake and that was only introducing characters when we needed them so this character that i had not seen prior all of a sudden is a big deal for this particular subplot whereas rome gives us all of the people who are going to matter by the end of episode one we've met everybody who's going to matter (laughs) and so i guess it was easier for me to keep track of what was going on in rome easier than in the tutors um all that said though i do think that it would probably be better to i mean i don't know if it would be better um i think i think it's subjective Um, Rome works for me, but I do think there is validity in treating your audience as if they've never heard of this world before and giving them a play-by-play from scratch. I think that, I, I, I wish somebody would at least try it just to see how it works out in a historical drama, at least. Nothing, no, 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 there's nothing to be lost because at the end of the day, I thought this was a really good show. And I thought it did some really interesting things, but it still got canceled after two seasons um, because, you know, the books weren't straight. <laughs> so <laughs> I feel like if you are going to to go all out, um, you can take it a step further and introduce people to how this world works and, you know, things of that nature. You know, you're, you're taking us into a world where there is slavery and... Um, you know, we understand how slavery works. Oh, <laughs> uh, there are sex workers. We understand how that works, but we don't necessarily understand the customs of war, the customs of marriage, how divorce works. Like for instance, Adia, Atia told her daughter Octavia to divorce her husband. 
literally within like the next couple of hours, the girl was divorced. I've mm. never seen a divorce work so fast in my life. <laughs> she was wearing right. the same clothing, you guys. It was the same episode. She was wearing the same clothing. She was already divorced. Um, so, and you know, Niobe got married at 13. Her daughter's getting married to the Drover at almost 14. And that was a perfectly normal age for a girl to be married off. Um, and, you know, they're talking about 15 and 16 year olds, like they're old maids. So, right. So, and also, yeah, bring us into this world a little bit better. I'm sure it would have helped a lot. Right. And also, I can admit that I, I also think that just this, this show and what it focused on is just in, in like, just the choices and I think the story that it was interested um, in telling is not to my taste. That's like, I, I'm, you know, I'm a big enough person to like admit that. Like, I think um, like this type of a narrative, like is just, is not really, yeah, it's just not to my taste. Like that's another part of it that I I'll happily just like put out there. Um, You know, I, when I, I, when I watch historical dramas, like I'm definitely looking for like lots of like, you know, marriage interpersonal stuff. And I, and also like, I love a social climber. I love like a sort of like, you know, uh, underdog, but like, we're going to take it to the top, like type of narrative. I love, and this just didn't, I think what, at least what I could get, because like, I really could not follow the show. Um, at least what I got from, from it was just, I don't know. I don't think it was just what I was, what I look for. I mean, that's how I felt about house of cards. Um, i the show did manage to engage me, but it's not a show that I would have put on and watched myself had it not been part of our politics season. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, the show kind of gave us a little bit of the things we're talking about. Um, we have the slave Irene, who, when she marries Pullo, she, like, she levels up. We have the marriage drama with Lucius Arenas and his wife, Niobe. We have Atia, who, even though she's a rich woman and a noble woman, is constantly, constantly, constantly conspiring to have more, more, more power, using her children, if need be, to get it. Um, we have Julius Caesar and his affair with Servilia, who he dumps in a pretty brutal way when his wife Calpurnia finds out because he can't afford for Calpurnia to divorce him because he needs her family's money to keep funding his war efforts. Um, so like small things like that, but like, I honestly feel like for a lot of the viewers, a lot of this got lost in the dialogue sauce, unfortunately. Yeah. But, but, but yeah, but season two. So how does, how does season two go? Well, season two was interesting because at this point, Julius Caesar's dead. So all of the enemies of Caesar's and all the enemies that his family, a.k.a. Atia, have racked up are no longer playing the subterfuge game. They're like telling these people to their face, like, you're going to get got, period. I hate you. <laughs> um, uh, and Caesar only got got because he... Um, he was, I guess this was before his time, but he didn't hear about how George W. Bush said, we don't negotiate with terrorists. <laughs> he, he was out here forgiving all of the Senate members that had taken up arms against him, that had um, sent lesions against him. He was like, oh, it's all forgiven and forgotten. Like even when it, the Egyptians murdered Pompey Magnus, 
he he took the lives of the men who had murdered this esteemed Roman senator. Like he had no bad blood with any of these people. He's like, listen, if we had beef before, it's over now. And if you won't start, none won't be none. And he thought he thought he had buried the hatchet. And then all of these people that he had forgiven killed him. <laughs> so if Rome taught you anything, it's like, listen, there's no friends in politics. There's no do-overs. Uh, there's no mercy. You have to hold people accountable for their actions or, you know, you're going to get stabbed 21 times on the Senate floor. Um, <laughs> so, so in season two, Mark Antony is kind of ruling his emperor, but Octavian is like, no, I'm, I'm emperor now. This is my birthright. I'm the great nephew of Caesar. He doesn't have any sons because they're refusing to, um, they're refusing to acknowledge Cleopatra's son as his son. So he's like, listen, he had no, no, no sons. He had no nephews. I'm his great nephew. I need that throne. And eventually Octavian gets it because he's the smartest person on the show. <laughs> um, and the, the battle between Servilia and Atia gets increasingly worse. They're fighting like cats and dogs. Servilia sends a spy to go poison Atia. Atia, who survives the attack, retaliates by sending men to go to Servilia's house and rape and torture her. Like, Romans fight ugly. That's that's what I got from the show. Um, so many of the, the scenes in the show of violence and torture are so above and beyond. And it's like, like, literally none of this is necessary, but these people walk in public, especially the nobility, like, the butter wouldn't melt in their mouths. And this is the shit that they're doing to each other behind closed doors. <sighs> right. That's cr crazy. Crazy. <laughs> it's so much. It's so much. Um, but you, we have even more war in, in, in season two. It's the Rome is an empire now. They've never stopped going to war. Um, Marcus Brutus does die in this season, and his mother has to mourn him because she has no son anymore, and her husband had already died. Um, um, and um, eventually, uh, Servilia curses Atia one last time and commits suicide this season. Um, um, Marcus, Mark Antony, Octavian and Lepidus divide the empire as co-rulers, which we all know that doesn't end well. Men don't have the, uh, have too much ego to share power with another man. It's just not going to work. <laughs> right. It's not going to work. Um, this is the season also where Timon, uh, Atia's hired man, who does her all kinds of unsavory favors and kills people for her, um, and she pays him with sex. This is the season where he finally, like, he finally gets a hold of himself. So Timon is a Jewish horse trader. He has a whole family, but he's like, he's like, he's pussy whipped. He loves having sex with Atia. Um, besides the fact that she's beautiful, she's a Roman noble woman. It makes him feel some type of way that he gets to be with this woman who is above his station um, socially in every way. Um, but this season, she breaks that camel's back and he realizes how he's messed up. He recommits himself to his God and recommits himself to his family and just tells her, you're on your own. 
so he has like a real character arc like the, the growth happens um he starts studying the torah and he goes back to his family and he's like i'm done with this well there you go we love That's, the growth we love the we growth love it. we love it <laughs> So, like I said, this show had planned five seasons, you guys. The first season was 12 episodes, and the second season was 10. And we already know what that means, right? When when the second season is fewer episodes than the first, we already know what that means. It's not looking good but for you. They burn through money. First of all, we had some real OGs in the cast. We had Indira Varma, who had already made a name for herself as an actress. We had Polly Walker. We had Siren Hines. Um... Who is the woman who plays Servilia? Lindsay Duncan. All these people are kind of a big deal in British film and cinema and in theater. And so, you know, their salaries were big. Then you're shooting on location. Then, and like, the the set design and wardrobe design were immaculate. Shout out to those people. But you guys knew you were going to be burning through money. Why would you do this? You know... Like, I mean, I guess you you swing for the fences. You know what I mean? <laughs> Listen, go a, C for is it. a C is a C. We don't need to be at, at, at the Sea of Alexandria <laughs> to know, like, <laughs> specifically. An ocean is an ocean. Make it work. You don't have to film on location all the time. <laughs> like, do you have film on location money? <laughs> You don't. You don't. And, and listen, I think, and and I really want to echo that because there there was a lot that I was watching that didn't even feel like like a lot of the location stuff felt unnecessary. Now that you're saying it, because so so much of it felt like it could have been replicated in sets anyway, and like it it looked like it was sets. Like most of it was just sets. So I was like, so what was the point of going? To Italy. Like, what was the point? What was the reason? Right, right, right. You're in Italy, but you still built a set, right? Like, like the entire neighborhood where Lucius Farinas and his wife live, that's a set. There's nowhere in Italy that looks like that anymore. Like, yeah, those all just look like really huge sets. Like, so they weren't even really taking advantage of, um, of just, like, the... I don't want to say they weren't taking... I feel because I've said, like, I feel like I've said location a bunch, but... They weren't, I guess, yeah, they weren't taking advantage of the beauty of the location. They were just, they were still sort of building a bunch of sets to to do whatever. So, I, I don't know. I don't know. Right, I mean, maybe they felt like filming on location would lend more authenticity um, to um, the show. But I don't even know that it did that. And then, like... There is, so there's the the version of Rome that also appeared on Rye 2, which is the network the show premiered on in Italy, was like, tone down the nudity and tone down the violence. And like, honestly, there is no Rome without the nudity and violence. <laughs> right. Um, the, 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 the audience that they got from Rye 2 Network was only 10% of the audience. But you put you plunge a bunch of money into filming on location and then promoting it on Rye 2. So they lost a lot of money on the promotional end as well. Right, right. Yeah, it's like, um, it's just, it's doing a lot of different shit. It just felt, it, yeah, it just felt unnecessary. And then I, 
And then I guess, like, I don't know, like, y'all could have, and then maybe y'all could have saved 15% or less if you had just casted people of color instead of putting all those white people in that dark makeup. That was so awkward. Oh my God, the Egyptians in like bronze face was really sending me. Sending me. What is this? Like, Sarah, you're, first of all, you're white and you're indoors all day. I know your skin don't got that glow. Stop it. Um, Stop it. And here's the thing about about humans and the way that we perceive phenotype. A person can look at another person's face and tell instantly, instantly, if they are wearing foundation too dark or too light for them. Right. Even if you've never seen that person before in your life, you know when their makeup don't match. We, we can, we... We can spot the 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 mixed fishing Instagram Instagram girls in real life too. We 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 can we can see it. We know. Right. You can play that on Instagram where you cover your face and you cover your neck and you cover your ears even. Oh my god, the dedication to cover your ears. They cover um, their boobs now. I was like, "Oh my gosh, that's Yeah, so the much. whole chest area, the clavicle, the cleavage, everything. But go out in public like that and see who you fooling. You're not fooling anybody. You're not fooling anybody, honey. <laughs> Like, I liked the costuming, but even that, none of it really sent me. None of it. I, I was not, like, I was enamored by, I think, the the dress, like, the stuff in the way that I was, like, enamored by, um, you know, those those fur moments on the Tudors. So, you know, right. those fur and velvet moments. Uh, <laughs> so, I, I don't know. I don't know. But it's, but, like, the. And people really love it. Like it was, it was well received, and like I get it. People really liked it. I mean, I like the clothing because, and I'm no period clothing aficionado, so please don't come for me in the comments. Um, but from everything that I've read and seen of ancient Rome, I feel like the clothing was period appropriate, so I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the huge. Uh, that a huge set of ancient Rome, what the streets looked like, what the slums looked like, what I guess their version of the suburbs looked like, what the Capitol building, what the Senate looked like. But let's talk about this budget really quickly. So um, these two networks, BBC2 and HBO, pulled a lot of money into this. They committed between 100 and 110 million to that first um, season. Um, uh, uh, BBC contributed actually, uh, 800,000 pounds to every episode of the first season of Rome. And yet they still ran out of money. (laughs) They still ran out of money. Um, there's actually some of the structures of the sets that they built of ancient Rome were kept up as tourist sites. Wow. That's, that's how much that's how much money they put into these damn sets. And for why? For why? The show did really well. Does, yeah. <laughs> like it got four Emmys, it got seven primetime Emmys, and it got a Visual Effects Society Award. But those awards couldn't keep you on air, could they? That's crazy to me that like it's so much money that they were kept up as tourist destination sites. Like that's banana nuts to me, really. But like all in all, I do. Listen, I do, there are a lot of aspects of this show that I really liked. I really liked, even though I think there was like entire, even though like I think there was entirely too much money uh, spent on it, I do like the general feeling of it. I like the general vibe. Honestly, I could be into, like you said, there's like, like 
there is like talks of a reboot uh, or like a continuation. I think that will be cool. Like if it happens, should there? And I would be, and I'm into the vibe of Rome. Like I would be into like a Rome type show that like maybe uh, had like a legit fantasy component to it. That I think that would be cool. So like all in all, I think it's nice. It's fine. I liked it. Even though I didn't. Right. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I like the show. Um, I really, I really liked what they did with the show. Um, like I said, more black Egyptians who were not slaves and servants. Um, that casting of Cleopatra was laughable. Please don't ever do that again. Um, but otherwise, I enjoyed the show. Um, so the show that they had originally planned had um. Uh, the second season was supposed to end with the death of Marcus Brutus. And then the third and fourth seasons were going to be set in Egypt and filmed on location. And the fifth season was going to be the rise of the Messiah in Palestine. That is what they had planned. Um, but then they had to like, basically he said telescope the, the third and fourth season into the second one. And of course the fifth season just never happened. There wasn't room for it in the, the storyline without feeling too rushed. So that's how Rome ended. If they get a reboot, I hope we get an accountant. I hope we get like a financial advisor. I hope we get a, you know, a budget person, you know, at the helm because maybe it's the poverty talking, but I don't understand how you can't do a show on a hundred million dollars <laughs> so so that's rome it was good it was that good is wrong yeah um i will say this for the show i feel like even um you know like you said you'd understand i feel like even people who didn't understand the show definitely when they you see the show you see exactly the era and the location you're supposed to be in so in that regards something that they did worked out right i don't have to like guess what they're talking about or what era they're talking about This is everything that we think made Rome good, bad, basic, and scandalous. If you'd like to check out the series, Rome is currently streaming on HBO Max, Hulu Premium, and YouTube Premium. If you've enjoyed this episode of The Good, The Bad, The Basic, be sure to share it with your friends. And with that, we officially wrap up the historical drama season of The Good, The Bad, The Basic. Thank you all for listening and joining us as we discuss the drama, politics, intrigue, and machinations of the premise and characters of these various period dramas. We hope that you've enjoyed them as much as we have. Emma and I will be taking our annual hiatus now, but we'll be back on February 11th with Season 10, Strong Female Leads. This season, we'll be covering television favorites, such as The Client List, Drop Dead Diva, Girlfriends, Being Mary Jane, Agent Carter, Sex in the City, Veronica Mars, The L Word, and Ugly Betty. We'll be de- debuting season 10 with none other than the iconic Living Single. Living Single is currently streaming on Hulu and Philo, so check out the series or go and go refresh your memory. And be sure to be back here in three weeks. 
The Good, The Bad, The Basic is currently streaming on all podcast platforms, so be sure to tune into our regular weekly episodes on the go. Leave us a review on your preferred platform and share our weekly episodes on your social media. Please follow us at The Good, Bad, Basic on Twitter and at Good, Bad, Basic Pod on Instagram to get in on our daily content. Also, be sure to follow our SoundCloud page, The Good, The Bad, The Basic, where all of our weekly episodes debut first. If you love this sort of content and want more, become a show producer and patron on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com forward slash good, bad, basic. Your support allows us to keep bringing you our regular weekly episodes as well as exclusive bonus material. Until next time, bye everyone.